Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. Today, we have a guest episode with James Gruber, and James is an assistant editor at First Links and Morningstar. And prior to that, he covered Asia as a leading fund manager, stockbroking analyst, and journalist, and more recently... He was a portfolio manager for Asian equities at AMP Capital, managing investments in Asia and China. During his time there, the China Fund was ranked number one globally over one and two years during this time. Which is impressive. Very. And to top this all off, he was also a television and radio news journalist at ABC and founded Asia Confidential in 2012. And now his work focuses on first links, where he writes insightful articles on markets, products, and investments. And one of these articles was a very similar theme to an episode that we've done already, how to build a portfolio with three ETFs. This also happens to be one of our most popular episodes, but the key to being a good investor is hearing different perspectives and making an informed decision about the approach that is best going to help you reach your financial goals. And the premise for James's research and article is John Bogle's two fund portfolio. He advocated for US investors to have just two funds in their portfolio, a stock market fund and a bond fund. And the exposure to each would depend on how much risk an investor needed in their portfolio. The advantage of this was a simple portfolio that was low cost, easy to understand and easy to implement. So James has gone ahead and tried to recreate this idea. Simple, low cost, and easy to implement, but for Aussie investors in an Aussie context. We know that a lot of our investors will be very interested in how this turns out. So we're very excited about this episode and having James on the podcast. All right. So, James, we did a little introduction earlier about you, but it's good to actually be able to talk about yourself. So, you want to. Tell us a little bit about your background. You have a very interesting background. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me on. It's actually my birthday today, so I'm very happy to be on. Wow. It's a good day. Happy birthday. I'm Thank sorry you. that you're at work doing this. <laughs> True enough. About my background, look, it's a little bit unusual. I started off in journalism as a journalist. Then I worked up to being chief of staff and a producer for television uh, and radio as well. So the 7 p.m. news on the ABC that you see every night, I know you're watching, Mark. Of course, of course. I was producing that in Canberra at one stage. Then I went into finance as a bit of a detour. I was an analyst on the sell site, so I worked for a stockbroker in Asia for about five years and then came down here as part of that to us back to Australia. Uh, went into portfolio management, um, did a couple of years of that. And then I, well, I've been AWOL probably for about 10 years where I did my own thing, uh, owned a few businesses and came to Morningstar a little over a year ago and uh, have been writing and editing for Morningstar as part of First Links and, and Morningstar since then. Okay. And one thing you didn't mention is you were also a podcaster. Yes. So wealth of experience. You want to tell us a little bit about wealth of, uh, wealth of experience? Sure. It's 
On Morningstar every fortnight, we have regular guests from Morningstar, Graham Hand and Peter Warns, who've been in the industry more than I've been alive. And we also have special guests. Uh, They are fund managers and industry executives. And we talk about uh, superannuation, retirement and investing themes as part of that. And um, yeah, so tune in. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's great. And, you know, one one interesting thing is, so you work with two people, Graham and uh, Peter Warrens, who are older than you. Do you constantly make fun of them for being older than you? I would never do that. I respect them greatly. Okay. Well, on <laughs> our podcast, Shawnee makes fun of me all the time for being old. So just something for Shawnee to think about. But we want to talk today about an article you wrote, and it was a very popular article, and it was you going through the process of trying to, I think, simplify your investing a little bit and pick a three ETF portfolio. So used to be a fund manager. I assume that the fund you were running did not have three ETFs in it. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I guess a simplistic portfolio like that, what do you think the advantages are? Since you've been on both sides of the coin, both professionally and now personally trying to simplify things. Yeah, so let's look at complexity. And if you run an institutional portfolio, it is complex. You have potentially anywhere from 50 to 150 stocks in a portfolio. You have analysts and portfolio managers as part of that. You have a whole investment process overlaying it. You do a lot of research into those stocks. You visit managers. uh, You go to different states or countries to do that, you talk to competitors, the process is analyst. It's it's complex. Um, I don't have that time anymore as, a, as an individual investor, like a lot of people. And simplifying it has a lot of advantages. Um, you don't have to keep track of everything so much. Uh, it can be low cost, uh, less time consuming, obviously. And it can just simplification as you get a bit older with life as well as portfolios, I think is better. I think it comes with age a bit. And I'm getting older, Mark. Okay. And literally older today. (laughs) Yes. Um, So we talked a little bit about the article before you published it. And you said one of the challenges you had, and maybe this is with your background and the fact that you are so knowledgeable about this stuff, is that literally every ETF you found, you found some sort of problem with it. Um, So yeah, I mean, I guess talk a little bit about that and how you actually got to the place where you were willing to pull the trigger on something. I'm an overthinker. Well, (laughs) the premise initially was, look, I had some excess cash that I wanted to put into Uh, the market. How best to do that in a simplified way, low-cost way. And I thought about a simple ETF portfolio that would cover cover that off. And how would I go about doing that? And I immediately thought of the legendary Vanguard founder, John Bogle, who advocated that individual investors could get by with a two-index fund portfolio. Now, there's a bit of a difference between index funds and ETFs, and we won't go into that here. We'll just talk about ETFs because they are somewhat similar. But he advocated a US uh, total equity uh, ETF and a bond one, a total bond 
ETF. So two ETFs cover the market, both from stocks and bonds. And he was a US-based investor, so he was talking about the US to US investors. Myself being an Australian investor, you could do it simply, as you know, by investing in a ASX 200 or 300 or All Lords uh, equity fund ETF. There are numerous ones out there. You could do that. And on the bond side, there's a total bond market ETF as well. So you could, you could cover the Australian market in a similar fashion. If you think through that, though, there are some challenges. Um, Australia's a pretty small market. It's about 2% of the world stock in index. So we're small fry in the global scheme of things. Our index here is also heavily weighted to the likes of banks and mining, heavily concentrated. We don't have much tech, uh, large healthcare, industrial. You don't get that in Australia. So do you want some greater world exposure as part of that? Well, you can. So you could split that potentially with two ETFs on the equity side. You could go Australia and uh, World X Australia. You could do it that way. You'd have the world covered uh, for stocks as, as a total stock market portfolio. And that would cover it off nicely. The over-thinker in me, though, thinks, well, what about that global stock ETF? What does that entail? Because what you've got to think about is with ETFs, there's a title for them, then there's what's actually in them. And they can be quite different. And you've got to investigate that a little bit so you know what you're buying. With a world stock ETF, a large percentage of that is US. It's about 58% is, is the US market. You're buying a lot of the US as part of that. Are you comfortable with that? Personally, I think the US is a little bit toppy at the moment. That is expensive. I'm not sure if I want that greater exposure to the US. So there's a complication there. How do you break that down? Well, you could go to another ETF. Potentially, you could do Australia, uh, the US, and then you could have maybe a Europe slash emerging markets fund. You could split that up into thirds, and you could have three ETFs on the the equity side, and you would cover the world, and it would be relatively simple. The next challenge, <laughs> if you overthink it like me, on the emerging market side, again, if you look underneath the hood, a lot of it is China. I've been a China portfolio manager. I think I know it reasonably well, and I don't like investing in China, to be honest. Uh, I think. Uh, its government isn't uh, driven by capitalism and it makes it hard for companies to thrive. And really, the index returns from China have been poor for a long, long time, uh, well before 2008. Uh, if you compare it to the likes of India uh, and other Asian countries surrounding it, they've been astonishingly poor. India has trounced it. Um, as well as other markets in the region, in Asia. So uh, do you want such a large China exposure as part of emerging markets is something to think about as well. And funnily enough, a lot of other investors are, are thinking along the same lines. In the US, there are emerging market funds that are coming out ex-China. 
uh, I think you'll see them soon in Australia because people may not want that kind of China exposure like me. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. Stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. I think the China thing's interesting because, and I think people have problems with individual shares or even sectors and thematics like that. People think growth, the economy has grown very quickly in China over the past couple of decades. Growth equals good returns, but that's not necessarily the case. Not at all. The growth has been phenomenal from an economic viewpoint, and there have been some success stories, particularly on the tech side, Tencent, Alibaba, and so on. Um, but overall, the market has performed extremely poorly. And it's probably a function of not only being a communist country, but just as an analyst and portfolio man- manager there, there were sectors that were very difficult to understand because you had government players in there as well as private. And it was very un- hard to understand how the private guys were going to win out against the government guys at the end of the day. And there were regulatory issues. So, for instance, the healthcare industry there. We know the US healthcare industry is is uh, complex. Well, the Chinese one is probably more complex. It is ridiculous. And to get a handle on what kind of companies are going to thrive in that industry is extraordinarily difficult. So, um, I've been under the hood of those kind of sectors and companies in China, and that, that does turn me off. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into some uh, specifics now. So maybe we'll start on the equity side. So what did you actually end up choosing and why? You talked a little bit about the thought process, but yeah, where did you land? I kind of landed on the choosing of just simplifying it with Australia and global ex-Australia. I try to keep it as simple as possible. I think if the more question, the more questions you ask, ask yourself and the more you go down that route, the harder it can kind of be. Uh, I can totally understand, though, why potentially you'd want um, maybe one or two more ETFs as part of that, branch out into Europe and emerging markets a little bit more. Um, but keeping it simple, you cover the world in two, two ETFs, four equities, works for me. And what did you think about, because I do get this question a lot in terms of allocation. So, you know, you talked about that if you were a non-Australian, and you were trying to get exposure to the globe, Australia would obviously be very small. Where where did you land between allocating between sort of global and Australia? So it's probably not going to be 2%, right, as an Australian. But what, what do you kind of think? What are the considerations about where to go? It's difficult. I, I went with 30 Australia, 70 world. But 
it's quite arbitrary why I went with that. Um, I think anywhere from uh, for an Australian-based investor, anything from 20 to 50 kind of makes sense. I think more than that, probably less so. But it is arbitrary. And the other consideration is on the international side is, is currency as well. Currency is a factor. Should you hedge that international portfolio? And the evidence that I've seen is that the longer your time horizon, and mine is kind of 10 plus years, the less of a factor currency really plays and that you don't need, really need to hedge it. But if you've got less than 10 years or you know, five or less particularly, then currency is a larger factor. So that's something to think about as well. Yeah, because actually we were talking earlier about Shani making fun of me for being old. She thinks I have well less than five years to live. <laughs> so I'll have to consider that in my own investment approach. But let's move over to bonds. So when you were working professionally as an analyst and a portfolio manager, you were working with equities. So how do you think about bonds and how do you think about them and the portfolio and how do you choose? There are lots of options with bonds as well. There are. I'm an equities guy, self-confessed, and I'm not a bond specialist. And But the way I view it is, is that bonds are a ballast and diversifier for a portfolio. They're really a safeguard for an investor in some ways. So the reason why 60-40, 60% equities and 40% bond portfolios are, are popular is because people want to not have the volatility that comes with equities solely in their portfolio. So if equities go down by 50%, as they did in 2008, then uh, they may not have the stomach for that, to hold on. And that's really what you want to do. You want to be able to hold on when there is a downturn because usually they're the worst times to sell. And bonds give you that cushion potentially during that time where you will be able to hang on if there's a downturn because if stocks go down 50, bonds may go down but nowhere near as much and overall your portfolio won't go down anywhere near as much as if you had 100% exposure. So that's the way I think about it. I do have a view, though, that if you're a very long-term investor, and I'm thinking even a in a super fund, your own super fund, for instance, it's a default super fund, and I'll probably write about this at some point, but I think it makes a lot of sense to have 100% equities in a, in a super fund if you've got 10 plus years in that fund to go, particularly if 20 or 30, then if you can stomach that volatility, then it makes a whole heap of sense to have more equities in there. Yeah. So I guess two things. You you were talking about behavioral risk, right? The That volatility induces somebody to do something stupid, you know, sell at the bottom of the market or pile in at the top. Is that a particular fear you have for yourself? I do. Yeah, I'm like everybody else. I I do have that fear. I I sold out of some things at the you know the bottom of 2008. So uh, there's always that fear, and I'm quite conservative as well. So uh, by nature, so I I need to protect my own worst instincts. So I'm part of that. So I I think that in a 
in an ETF portfolio like this that that I need to have some kind of weight weight to bonds that I need to have something in the order of 30 to, 30 to 40% makes a, makes a fair bit of sense to me as a conservative investor. Okay, and you were saying you were saying that you know you have over a 10-year time horizon do you plan on changing that allocation at least between equities and bonds as you get older you're comfortable with we're sticking with this i'm i'm comfortable with sticking with that you've got uh you've got funds that specialize in changing allocations as you get older these days oh those target funds that's and everything ex- else that's exactly right and that that does make sense but uh, for me, I, I'm going with what I'm comfortable with at this stage, and I'm sticking to that in the long term. I hope uh, that I'll stick to it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's a really good point that all of us as investors need something we're comfortable with at the end of the day, right? Something we can stick with because the worst thing is constantly changing yes. your portfolio. So, so I, I think that people need to think about those circumstances where things go wrong and what they would do and the best uh the best guidance for that is often the past how you've acted in the past have you got nervous have you panicked uh, have you done things that were not wise from a present perspective and you've got to think seriously about that and know yourself and then um have a portfolio that reflects yourself because ultimately it needs to reflect you uh, rather than anybody else yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, you talk to, and certainly people that listen to us, read things at Morningstar, know at least these behavioral risks and sort of fear and greed driving people, especially at the tops of markets and the bottoms of market. And I think maybe they know, okay, well, I should not make changes at this point. But particularly for younger investors who haven't been through anything, right? The GFC, and if we sort of throw COVID aside, I mean, to be fair, that would lasted like a month and a half. So if we throw COVID aside, a lot of younger investors might sit there and say, okay, well, I can be 100% equities because I know that I wouldn't sell. And it's a little different going through it when every day you're seeing your portfolio go down and it's being reinforced by all these news stories that you know capitalism is going to collapse in terms of the GFC, money is not going to come out of the ATM. Yeah, it's a little harder to do when that actually happens. Maybe they would need to think outside of investing and their own experiences and life experiences and how they reacted to them. How did they react during COVID and other events that were quite extreme in their own life and potentially how they react to that? They need to know their own psychology and um, that can come outside of investing as well as inside. Yeah. Personally, during COVID and during the GFC, I just increased the amount that I drink. (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know if that that probably led to poor financial outcomes because I had to go buy more Direct alcohol. Direct correlation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, th- this article came out this year. So I guess what are the next steps in terms of this portfolio and, you know, how you're going to maintain it? Are you going to rebalance or, I mean, I guess sort of what's your approach going forward? Yeah, look, I I intend to add to it over time and try to keep a similar percentage. It is 70-30 at the moment. Whether I back that off later on is 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 up for debate, but I intend to stick to 70-30, 70% equities, that is, and 30% bonds um, in three ETFs, two in the equity side and one in the bond. We can discuss the bond one a little bit, but 
Um, that's that's the plan is to add to it. And look, I think if the percentages don't get too out of whack, then then I'll I'll continue that. But if say they sway to you know, under sixty five for equities, then you'd have to start thinking about potentially rebalancing that. And a lot of the research shows that rebalancing does pay off in the longer term. So uh, that that's something for further thought. Okay, and let's and you alluded to it. Let's let's talk about the bonds for a second because I, I meant to uh, I meant to ask about that. There are all sorts of bonds, right? The fixed interest market is a lot larger than the equity market. There are all sorts of different varieties, from high yield to government to corporate, all sorts of different things. What what did you settle on in terms of what you want exposure to? Yeah, look, I settled on, and this is going to be a bit contrary to equities, but I settled on an Australian government bond. Uh, ETF. Why did I sell on that? Well, it's the safest one. It's going to give me the diversification and safety that I I want. And uh, so I didn't go for what a more risky but potentially higher rewarding bonds such as you know your high yield, your corporate, uh, all of that kind of thing where you, where you can go up the up the risk curve to get more reward. I didn't do that because I don't think that suits my purposes in terms of what bonds can serve in my portfolio. And why didn't I go global? Well, um, I could have, and I did think about it. Um, there are pluses and minuses on the research for that, and I, I didn't feel the need for it. But I'm not an expert, and I think that that you know, does require potentially some more research. Okay, great. And the most important question is what are your plans for your birthday? What are my plans? Well, uh, I am going to visit my, well, my quasi-boss, my boss, uh, straight after this, and then I'm going to go to uh, dinner. My family's already in the city. My kids are with my wife at work. You've got to love school holidays. They've they've come to work with her, and uh, we're going out for dinner in the CBD. All right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for joining and happy birthday. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Obviously, we would love any questions or comments in the podcast app or send me an email. My email is in the notes section. Thank you. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.